still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or a series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. There is a tendency to look back on the past with rose-coloured spectacles and imagine that the world was a happier or safer or somehow more comfortable place. It's a fallacy as there were fewer CCTV cameras, few methods of communicating with emergency services, fewer passive traces of offenders and victims. Some, myself included, would hail this era as the last hurrah of a real sense of freedom within the UK. Others, myself included, would argue that today's passive surveillance of our every move is a welcome development that can be useful to keep us safer, while others would argue, myself included, that the gradual erosion of our liberties allows for a less than beneficial state mechanism to monitor, track, categorise and ultimately sanction remotely members of the community. As you can tell, I'm a little conflicted by this complicated and thoroughly modern development. It's both dystopian in its scope and beneficial for both accused and victim. The case I'm concentrating on today would have been greatly helped by the digital ephemera that we leave in our everyday movements. But as it was still towards the very start of the digital revolution at a consumer level, there are frustratingly few traces to help track the man who carried out an almost unfathomable and recklessly audacious attack on a mother, wife and successful businesswoman, all without a motive, it would seem. The resultant appeals would both bring some information and later would reveal a very distasteful reaction from the British public. In these modern times, I hope that those who have some information about this case will now find the moral fibre to come forward. Ruth Penelope Penny Bell 6th of June, 1991 Penny Bell, as most people will know her, was born in 1948. Her family life seems to have been a happy and healthy one. In 1981, she married her boyfriend, Alistair Bell. They had met in 1975. The marriage would be Penny's second, the first ending in divorce some years earlier. Together, Penny and Alistair would both become successful people employed at the director level. Alistair was the director of an estate agency, That's a realtor for the American audience. And Penny was the director of a human resources agency with a specialism in the supply of high-quality catering staff. Her business was doing well, with an annual turnover of around £3 million, and Penny was earning around £80,000, 
that's good money for 1991 in the early 90s recession. The family Bell lived in a very nice part of the country, Denham in Buckinghamshire. It's a section of Greenbelt, with very easy access to the A40 and London. This sort of area is best classified as being part of the director's belt that sits around the city. There's an enormous golf club there, and an outside leisure and activity centre that encompasses several major lakes, which are converted gravel pits. There's a pleasant 12th century church, well, the foundations of 12th century, with 15th century and later additions. A typical example of a British church. A palimpsest of reconstruction, augmentation and changing societal attitudes. There's a pub with a jolly name and a decent menu, although it may well have just still been a village pub in 1991. Their home was in the middle of redevelopment, and the house was being worked on by a team of builders. The bells were extending the ground floor and replacing the kitchen. Both were costly, but due to the success of their careers, paying for the work was no problem. On the morning of the 6th of June, there were 11 workmen on site. The builder overseeing the project had been contracted as the pair knew him, which is a regular occurrence, word of mouth being an excellent marketing tool. Penny stopped to chat briefly before leaving for the office. Being a director, she didn't need to be in the office at opening time, so usually left the house around the 9.30 mark. That morning, she was there chatting at 9.40am and said to the person she was talking to that she had to dash to avoid being late for a meeting at 9.50am, but said no more about it and went on her way. At 12.15, Metropolitan Police were called to the car park of the Gurnall Leisure Centre in Greenford, West London. A woman had been taken ill in the car park. An hour or so earlier, two other women using the facilities had seen the car. A powder blue Jaguar XJS parked in a bay with their hazard lights and windscreen wipers on. They had looked inside and saw a woman that they thought was asleep, so went on to their exercise. Only when they returned an hour later did they check again. This time they saw a little more, and the police were called. Carefully, the attending officers opened the door to find a scene of utter horror. Penny Bell sat in the driver's seat, dead from massive blood loss caused by a savage attack with a bladed implement. The car park was immediately sealed and became a crime scene that would be meticulously examined by forensic and uniformed officers. Penny was removed for an immediate post-mortem to obtain as much information about the attack and possibly her attacker. Her clothes were taken for careful examination whilst the pathologist got to work. The findings pointed to Penny having fought valiantly against her attacker for some considerable time, as evidenced by the cuts to her hands and arms. They were obviously 
defensive wounds from where she had tried to stop her assailant, but he had prevailed. He stabbed at Penny around the chest and throat from the passenger seat, which is on the left-hand side for those in countries that drive on the right. He then got out of the car, walked around to the driver's side, opened the door, then leaned down into the car and continued the attack, slashing Penny's throat repeatedly. The knife attack was in a frenzy. The killer had taken time to move and continue the attack, continuing to inflict injuries and seemingly to ensure that Penny Bell was definitely dead before he departed. So how had Penny Bell left her home at 20 to 10 and been found savaged in a car park some hours later? Stemming from the discovery of Penny grew the hydra of a complex murder investigation. The immediate and first point of inquiry was the sports centre and the car park. Police were soon to discover that the car had been there since around half past ten. The women who had seen the car before their exercise said that they had noticed the car because, although it wasn't raining, the windscreen wipers were running and the hazard warning lights four-way flashes, some call them, were on. This would have looked and sounded conspicuous. The wipers were screeching on the dry glass. There are some vagaries with the timings that raise a few questions. The car, a high-class and executive model of performance sports car, with a very distinctive design somewhat reminiscent of the design of the legendary E-Type, had been parked at the leisure centre before the first women saw it. It's reported from different sources as having been there from 10.20am and others later or earlier, which adds nothing to clarity. The sighting that police lend most credibility to with regard to the timing of Penny's arrival at the sports centre is 10.30am, narrowing down the possible timings for the journey. The objective of the police investigation, aside from identifying the murderer, was to find the route that Penny used from her home in Buckingham to the sports centre car park. Penny wasn't known to use this sports centre at all. Understanding the route would give them a clear picture of the journey and would enable detectives to focus on that part of the inquiry to search along the route for eyewitnesses and other important information. It was a nine-mile journey from her home to the sports centre. The initial response to the news coverage and appeals through the newspapers was very good, and soon they had a more complete picture of events, although there are still unknowns from that morning. The witness who saw the car at 10.30am stated that he saw the Jaguar entering the car park slowly, hazard warning lights flashing, with an obviously distressed woman who appeared to mouth, help me, as they drove past him. Although he later contacted the police about the matter, at the time he did not, and said nothing. This has been the root of much speculation, as the inaction seems to be difficult to comprehend, but there are several possibilities that would account for it. One theory is that he didn't want to get involved in what could have been a domestic argument, and whilst that's taken as an understandable position by some, 
I know that I wouldn't be able to stop myself from intervening or saying something to the staff. He has expressed his regret at not doing anything at the time and has received a lot of critical comment in the media. But this case is full of witnesses to a woman begging for help and them doing nothing. That witness gave a description of the man in Penny's car. He is described as a male in his 40s with dark hair, swept back at the temples and possibly a beard. He also describes the man as wearing a gold bracelet on his right wrist. Almost identical descriptions came in from motorists and passengers who saw the Jag with the hazard lights on driving slowly and erratically along the A4127 in Greenford. This is the main radial route between Heston and Wembley. Along the stretch that passes through Greenford, on either side of the road, are shops and houses. At around 10am on a workday, those shops and pavements are going to be busy with people shopping, with deliveries being made, and the usual cornucopia of cars, buses, lorries and other associated traffic. It's a busy road in London, and as detectives dug deeper into searching for clues about her journey, more witnesses came forward who had seen Penny's car driving slowly and erratically through the streets, with the hazards on and struggling with a man in the car who appeared to be grabbing the wheel every time Penny tried to pull into the curb. Yet at the time, no one reported it. No one attempted to intervene. No one reacted to a woman pleading for help. There is a recognised phenomenon, and as we're all true crime enthusiasts in some form or another, we're probably all aware of it. The bystander effect. I won't go into it too much, although it is quite a large part of the events that ultimately led to the preventable death of Penny Bell. The bystander effect is, according to Psychology Today, quote, The bystander effect occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation. Social psychologists Bib Latante and John Darley popularised the concept following the infamous 1964 Kitty Genovese murder in New York City. As Genovese was stabbed to death outside of her apartment, neighbours failed to step in or call the police. Latane and Dali attributed the bystander effect to the perceived diffusion of responsibility. Onlookers are less likely to intervene if there are other witnesses who seem likely to do so. And social influence. Individuals monitor the behaviour of those around them to determine how to act. The social paralysis described by the bystander effect has implications for how we behave not only on city streets filled with strangers, but any place where we work or socialise. When individuals relinquish responsibility for addressing a problem, the potential negative outcomes are wide-ranging. From minor household issues that housemates collectively avoid dealing with, to violence and abuse that go unchecked. Some efforts have been made, including on college campuses, to encourage people to be active bystanders and fight the urge to step aside when someone is in trouble. End quote. It's often said 
that society has grown colder when social experiments have been conducted with an actor being in distress and no one comes to help. But it seems that it has always been a facet of the human psyche. It's a shameful reality that often people simply do not want to get involved for a whole number of reasons. But in this ever more connected world, where almost everybody has a mobile phone, calling for people who are trained to intervene or help is very easy. Sadly, many people use their mobile phones in these instances not to call for help, but to film. Not for evidence, although I would hope that quite a few people are doing exactly that, but to post online. As tips continued to come in, there were reports of Penny's car having been seen in a number of locations that morning. The first report was of Penny with a man in her car at Black Park Iver at around 9.50am. The account given describes Penny pulling into one of the car parks next to a bronze-coloured saloon-type car. The driver of which then exited his car, got into the Jags passenger seat before Penny drove away. He is described in his 30s, 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, with short fair hair, wearing a white shirt and tie. Business attire. This sighting, however, has never fully been verified. Another report apparently witnessed Penny and a man in her car near to the back of the famous Pinewood Studios. That man is described in similar terms to the ones given nearer to the sports centre. The reasons for Penny's diversion have never been fully explained, and as the investigation unfolded, there were more inexplicable instances in the days immediately prior to her murder that still need answers. Three or four days before she died, Penny withdrew £8,500 in cash from her joint savings account. That's a hefty wedge of cash, and she had taken it in £50 notes. That's 170 £50 notes, which is actually quite small and light, easy to slip into a pocket. For many people, that was their annual wage back in 1991, and judging by the fact that in today's money, that £8,500 would be £12,758, around about the bottom end of the wage market today. Still a hefty sum, and certainly a large enough sum to merit being annotated somewhere. But Penny, normally a highly meticulous woman who kept detailed records, failed to put this substantial withdrawal anywhere in her paperwork. Her husband was also unaware of the withdrawal. In 1991, it was possible to go into a building society branch, that's a savings and loan association for the US listeners, and withdraw substantial sums without it being known about until the statements at month end or quarterly. There was most likely no way without visiting the branch for the balances to be checked at a distance. We are all very accustomed to being able to go online to see balances these days, and we forget what a monumental hassle almost everything was before digital information was at our fingertips permanently. Penny is reported to have placed the money in a manila envelope. 
The witness who saw the money in the envelope in her bag that morning was her daughter, Lauren. Penny took the money with her on the way out of the house, as it wasn't at her home when police examined the property. The police also looked at her husband closely, as they are bound to do. Alistair Bell was open and frank with them. Prior to meeting Penny, Alistair was in a long-term relationship with another man and self-identifies as a homosexual. His relationship with Penny was the only heterosexual partnership he had had, and police deepened their inquiry into his life. Eventually, they were able to verify Alistair's movements on that morning, and he was eliminated from their investigation. Police have insisted that the depth of the investigation into Mr. Bell's previous partners and sexual orientation was them conducting their investigation with as much detail as possible, and that it was their duty to investigate properly. Two years after being cleared, Mr. Bell is quoted as saying, I think police always suspected me of killing Penny because I had had homosexual lovers. If they hadn't devoted so much time to my homosexuality, I believe they would have caught the killer. End quote. Penny's life was also placed under the microscope, and the police found absolutely no evidence of an affair. No sign of her being blackmailed. No sign of anything other than a woman who was cherished and adored by those who knew her personally and highly regarded by those who knew her professionally. Her business partner, Michael Flynn, was examined and their business records were investigated and again, everything was in order and as it should be. There was no sign of any impropriety in her private, personal or business life. But equally, there was no explanation of the large amount of cash that Penny had withdrawn and no record of any meeting that morning. The forensic examination of the car yielded little of use, but did raise some significant questions. Inside the car were samples as if they were laid out for discussion, and what and where those samples were in the car is another matter that raises confusion from the varied nature of the reports. Many state that carpet swatches were laid out on the back seat, and others that they were on the centre console of the car, and others that the samples were either wallpaper, as Penny was about to have her bedroom redecorated, and wood samples for the kitchen fittings. This point is in need of examination. The reports that they were laid out on the back seat is straining credulity, as although the XJS technically had rear seats, they were narrow, and the legroom would have been fantastic for people who had had both legs amputated at the knee. It's little more than a glorified cushioned parcel shelf. It would be possible to put things on the back seat and discuss them if the occupants turned to face each other, which would also be the case if wallpaper and wood samples were laid out on the centre console. The console itself is quite wide with a spacious leather armrest covering a small storage compartment. The walnut and leather interior provided a very comfortable ride for the passenger and driver. If Penny had arranged to meet a decorator to discuss her options, 
it would make sense for the samples to be in the car and for them to be the centre of attention. But then why did this man suddenly start attacking her? It is said that money was ruled out as a motive. Yet despite the reports of Penny having £8,500 in cash that morning, no sign of the money was found in the car. This has caused several lines of speculation. Had Penny taken the money out of the account to pay builders a dollop of cash in hand to lower the inevitable VAT bill, or was the money to pay off someone who was blackmailing her, and more outlandishly, had she taken the money out to pay for a hitman, and had the killer for hire, then taken the cash and decided to kill her to avoid the job and just take the cash? The first is plausible. Even well-respected business owners and masters of industry aren't averse to finding every way possible to reduce the fiscal strain of any project, especially personal ones. So it is worthwhile considering. If the transaction was done sotto voce, any tradesman might have been unwilling to reveal that they had been involved in a bit of creative accounting, lest the taxman should want to delve a bit deeper into their books. They're not always as transparent as they should be. The blackmail theory is interesting but empty. There would have been some other evidence pointing to the cause for such leverage to be placed upon her. Her company, Coverstaff, provided top-flight catering staff for major events, and it is possible that someone had knowledge of Mr Bell's sexual history. Anne had been threatening to expose the couple, which, in turn, may well have damaged her business at that time. Although we like to think that by 1991, society had matured to the point of being more accepting of human sexuality in all of its deep and rich complexity, the horrid reality is that homophobia of early 90s England came to the fore when police made public Mr Bell's homosexuality. Until that point, tips had been flowing in. But afterwards, the calls stopped. Not just a big drop-off, but people stopped calling in altogether. I still find this fact to be exceptionally disturbing. They would rather let the family of a murder victim suffer and a clearly dangerous maniac to continue to walk free because the husband had had stable relationships with other men. I mean, come on, that's just horrible and unnecessary. The hired assassin theory is just plain daft and without any substance. But we'll come back to that soon. What we do know about the killer is sparse. According to police, he would have been drenched in blood. The wounds Penny suffered would have produced arterial spray and combined with the dramatic physical altercation in the car, Penny's blood would have been all over his shirt and trousers. And yet, no one saw this 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10 white man in his 30s or 40s leave the sports centre car park covered in blood. He simply walked away in broad daylight. I know Londoners can be a bit anaesthetised about the appearance of others. It's a metropolitan, diverse and highly mixed society. 
but a man dressed in business attire who is soaked in blood would turn people's heads, but seemingly not in this case. The car was parked in one of the end bays of a row that had a small hedge to the front and the driver's side, as the car was parked nose first into the space. This would have offered some considerable cover as being June, the hedge would have been in full leaf, so people might not have seen what was happening, even if they were a few feet away the other side of the hedging. That, however, doesn't explain the ease of escape. The car park is an open area, with a couple of rows of hedging dividing the bay aisles. The row Penny's car was parked in had another row of bays behind it, and a road that ran along the side by the hedge near the driver's door. To leave the car park, there were quite a few options, but all of them involved the killer walking a fair distance from the car to the road, which had then got the additional obstacles of pedestrians, drivers of all types and shopkeepers. Or they could have walked away across the sports field behind the car park. It's a possibility, as no more than 10 or 12 feet from the short two-barred fence that surrounds the playing field was a gate almost directly opposite the murder location. A very convenient escape route. Anybody walking away from the car park would just look like a figure in the distance. It's a very curious and specific location. It speaks a lot about the killer having knowledge of the area. This was a carefully planned and orchestrated attack. Penny had been struggling with this man for some time as they travelled along the A4127. The car then turned on to the B455 and began towards the sports centre. This part of the route is understandably light of witnesses, as although in London it's quite an underdeveloped stretch of road, with sections of open grassland and trees on either side. Although there would still have been traffic on that road, and they were probably still driving erratically. It's clear that the killer had intended to head to that location specifically. Which is where the last escape route theory becomes a reasonable, if not highly plausible one. This theory is a simple one, that no one saw him walk away from the scene because he had already left his own vehicle in the car park. This would have had the killer forcing Penny to park near to his car. He then carried out the frantic and prolonged lethal assault before simply climbing in his own car and driving away to live the rest of his life with the terrible secret of what he did that morning. To my mind, there's no other logical explanation. A vehicle would have given him the option to both clean himself up a bit and leave without anyone noticing. Some have postulated that there would have needed to be a second person involved with the escape plan, with them departing in a hurry. But if there's one thing that can be said for sure, a car speeding away would have been noticeable, and even with the lack of reports, it would have been seen. The sports centre wasn't quiet that day, and neither was the car park. If the killer drove away, and did so at a normal speed for a car park, he could have slipped past everyone, as who would notice a car leaving a car park? True crime fans aside, almost no one remembers the small ordinary stuff. In total, 
More than 800 motorists who had used that car park on that morning were questioned. They were either eliminated or they had statements taken. If he did park at the leisure centre, where did he then go? But more importantly, how did he end up in Penny's car? One witness statement has Penny letting a man roughly of the description given earlier into her car behind Pinewood Studios. This sighting is quite interesting. It's stated that Penny was seen on the Fulmer Common Road. If there's one thing that the residents have in common on this road is that they aren't common. Fulmer Common Road is mansion territory. The houses have swathes of land between them. Spacious grounds, tennis courts and swimming pools abound. So a car like a Jaguar XJS would be most at home there. It wouldn't look out of place. If this sighting is credible and Penny had driven from her home in Denham, which is only a few miles away on the north side of the A40 M40, her route would have been down the A412, onto the A40, across the roundabout to rejoin the A412 Denham Road, then right into Seven Hills Road, over the M25, still following the narrow Seven Hills Road until the junction with Pinewood Road, where she would have needed to turn right, then follow the road around to the left where it becomes Fulmer Common Road. It's not actually that far out of her way, and it seems a little out of place to consider that she would pick someone up who didn't have some form of connection to the place. It's a road bordered by high hedges, with the occasional large gated entrance, and very little to indicate the size of the properties that lay just out of sight. If the killer had picked the location to be collected, he did so, I believe, to hide a posh sports car in a region with lots of posh cars floating around. Along former common road, there are numerous laybys that give access to the Blackwood, an area popular with walkers and dog owners. It's in one of these that Penny is alleged to have allowed her killer into the car. This sighting was at 9.50am, right on the time that Penny had said she had a meeting to get to. Penny's well-known meticulousness slipped again, as there was nothing in any diary to suggest a meeting. It's important to point out that this sighting on former Common Road is a different sighting from the woman who reports a man getting into Penny's car at a car park in Black Park, Ivor. If this sighting is credible, then it's likely that the killer knew the area quite well, as he then, it seems, directed Penny to the Gurnall Grove Sports Centre car park. The premeditation from him is unavoidable. He brought the murder weapon with him to a meeting about what? Soft furnishings and interior design? The knife itself is described by the penetrative wounds poor Penny suffered. It's between 3 and 4 inches, or 75 to 100 millimetres, with a curving blade. To me it sounds like a lock knife which would have been folded down into something very easily concealed, so it could have been in his pocket from the start and no one would have been the wiser. How the journey turned from being a pickup to a savage murder is one for pure conjecture at this point. 
and hopefully in time the offender will be caught and we will know more. But for now, we're all at sea. Before the investigation passed into the periodic reviews, more than 8,000 people had been spoken to and more than 2,000 witness statements, ranging from those nearest to her all the way to the vaguest of witnesses, were taken. And none of them produced a definitive suspect. As the case went cold, and officers allocated elsewhere, Alistair Bell and Michael Flynn put up a £20,000 reward for information. It still stands. Let's listen to Alistair Bell. It is all I can do, is to, is to put up money, and I feel very much that it's a last-ditch attempt at trying to, uh, to get anything out of anybody who knows anything at all. It's just such a difficult thing to live with, and I feel that as time passes by so quickly, we are going to enter a situation where people will not be able to remember the events of early June. Sadly, there have been no great developments, but there are a couple of people worth mentioning. We'll start off with the most notorious of the suspects, Robert Knapper. Knapper is a violent and lethal multi-murderer with a clinically diagnosed personality disorder. He has a history of savagely attacking strangers in open public areas with a bladed implement. He killed Rachel Nickell on Wimbledon Common in 1992, so he was active as a killer at the time. His attack on Rachel was a prolonged and vicious assault. She had been stabbed 49 times. She was with her son, who was just two years old at the time. When he was found, he was still trying to wake his mummy. Every time I hear that, or similar details of children having to witness such violence, it breaks my heart. Although Napa later confessed to killing Rachel, he was eliminated from the police inquiries initially. It wasn't until after his arrest and conviction for the thoroughly despicable and debased murder of young mum Samantha Bissett and her daughter Jasmine that he admitted his guilt. He was caught after police found one of his fingerprints in Samantha's flat. Napper had stabbed Samantha in the chest and neck before turning his attention to four-year-old Jasmine, whom he sexually assaulted before smothering her to death. Napa is also thought to be the green chain rapist, even admitting to several of the early rapes in the series, but not all of them. In that series, more than 70 violent rapes and sexual assaults were perpetrated between 1990 and 1994. He is currently, and thankfully permanently, contained at the Broadmoor Secure Hospital for the Criminally Insane. The list of former and current inmates is a spectacular list of the dreadfully disturbed, including Kenneth Erskine, the Stockwell Strangler who masturbated all the way through his trial, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, and Christiana Edmonds, the Chocolate Cream Poisoner. She plagued Brighton in the 1870s. If you're not familiar with that case... I recommend looking it up. Whilst it seems possible that Napa could have been the man responsible for this savage murder, it doesn't quite gel for me. Napa is six feet two tall, 
1.8 meters, but walks with a stoop. So it isn't entirely out of the question, apart from the fact that the entire setup seems to be very carefully planned from the pickup point to the murder location. There was absolutely no sign of any sexual assault of any kind to Penny. It was a savage and personal attack. There even has to be a question mark over the £8,500 as a motive. We know for sure that Penny had the cash on her that morning as her daughter Lauren, then nine years old, clearly remembers seeing the envelope full of cash in her mother's handbag that morning. But where it went is unknown. It certainly wasn't in the car and police have dismissed robbery as a motive as her handbag, containing her purse, cash and credit cards, were all still in the car and untouched. That £8,500 is still missing. Someone knows what happened to it. If you're a builder that took a backhander, please come forward. One very plausible reason for the police discounting robbery as a motive was the deeply personal and prolonged nature of the attack. Stopping to change position during an assault is a significant behavioural indicator of the killer being in an overkill frenzy but still cognizant enough to ensure the punishment, and it does seem like a very particular, very personal punishment, was successful in completing the end goal of ensuring Penny Bell was dead. Overkill usually but not always, indicates that the victim and perpetrator knew one another. The next person who appeared on the suspect list was actually a friend of the family, John Richmond. Richmond is the origin of the hired assassin theory. He came to prominence when he tried to sell his story to the tabloids for £80,000. Rather than his own manila envelope stuffed full of cash, Richmond found himself receiving a pair of handcuffs and a lengthy detailed interrogation in a police station. He claimed that he knew about the events that led up to her death and that he was actually the man who had been seen in her car. His story ran along the lines that Penny was having a secret relationship with him and that they were planning on sleeping together. Penny had been the victim of a hitman, he insisted, and even though his fingerprints were found in Penny's car, there is no further corroborating evidence for his story. Police delved deeply into his life and found nothing. For the possibility of £80,000 in filthy lucre, he fabricated a story, distracted police from their full investigation, and betrayed the trust of his grieving friends. These instances make me so livid because greed overrides every single lasting scrap of compassion. I'm far from a millionaire, but if a family friend had been murdered, I wouldn't dream of concocting some gibberish just for 30 silver coins, as it were, and risk wrecking the investigation. That is, essentially, where the story ends. A fun, loving wife, mother, successful businesswoman and generally all-round good person is stabbed to death in broad daylight after making direct appeals to people to help her. Although it doesn't end at the moment, it keeps going. 
the investigation is still going. Someone out there knows about this killing. The man responsible would now be between 45 and 75, and if he hasn't been incarcerated or died in some way, then someone knows something. It's possible that the £8,500 was used to facilitate the escape overseas of the man responsible. There was an entire continent to escape into, and a large sum of money would be useful to avoid incriminating traces of movement. If it were a close family friend, their sudden disappearance would be highly visible. However, if they were clever enough to orchestrate a public murder and disappear, there's also every possibility that they're smart enough to have taken the money, made all the right and appropriate noises about the horror of the situation, and not suddenly become richer, but would have had needed only to use an extra 50 every now and again to raise no suspicions. Whoever did it carries not just the responsibility of the savagery meted out on Penny, but the wholesale destruction of the happy, loving and successful Bell family. Alistair withdrew from life following his wife's murder, and when Lauren turned 18, broke contact with her, saying that he, quote, couldn't do love anymore, end quote. Grief affects everyone differently, and this poor family were torn apart by this man in their mother's car that June day in 1991. Both Lauren and her brother Matthew have gone on to have families of their own, and have been on a journey few of us can ever fully imagine. My heart goes out to them all, and I hope that I have done a reasonable job on getting the facts out there once more. If you are married to someone whom you suspect might be involved in this, or a family member or a friend might be responsible, first and foremost, make sure you are safe before contacting authorities. You can call police on 101 or Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111 where you can give information anonymously. And until such time that somebody does come forward, Penny Bell's killer will remain at large. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. Please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with conversations about the show, get regular updates on our Facebook page by visiting Facebook slash still at large podcast the theme tune is by duke deck and online music ai at dukedeck.com still at large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production <laughs>